The patient experienced heart attacks, life-saving shocks from his implanted defibrillator, and then a risk-filled journey to heart transplantation. What was the framework he built to meet the challenges along the way? I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard, and you're listening to ReachMD Book Club. And our guest today is the patient I just briefly described. His name is Bob Mitchell. Thank you, Bob, for joining us. Thank you so much, Maury. I really, really appreciate the invite. Bob has a Ph.D. in French comparative literature. He's been an advertising creative director, a professional athlete, and a novelist. But today, we'll discuss his recent memoir, Time for a Heart-to-Heart, Reflections on Life in the Face of Death. To begin with, what prompted you to write this memoir? Actually, I'm a novelist, and I write novels, obviously, and I had no intention whatsoever to write a memoir because generally memoirs are done by, you know, Hollywood stars and convicted felons and celebrities and so on. And my wonderful wife, Susan, who saved my life many times during this ordeal, and we can get into that later, she said, you know, you have to write this book. It's it's so important. It was a life-changing experience you had. You have to write it. And I said, well, you know, I'm a novelist. And at one point she said, you must write this. And being a literary person myself, a writer, this uh, resonated because I went back in my mind to the great German poet Rilke, and he wrote a book called Letters to a Young Poet, in which he tells this young poet, uh, Franz Capus, he says, if you ask, must I write? And the answer is, if muss, I must, then live your life in accordance to this necessity. And this resonated so much to me that I began to write this book. I wanted to write it because it was necessary, obviously, but I wanted to share my story, not just with myself, but with you, the reader. And I say that because the title, Time for a Heart to Heart, is sort of a double entendre. It's a time for a heart to heart with myself, a monologue, but also a dialogue with the reader about all the things. You know, I was in the hospital for you know, 100 days, and I probably spent a 1,000 hours thinking and putting everything into perspective. It really is what part of what saved my life. And in the book, I talk about all the things that put my experience, my harrowing experience, into perspective, mostly talking about the conflicts, the universal conflicts that all of us go through every single day, hubris versus humility, success and failure, fear and hope. That was a big one, especially when you're waiting for a new heart, obviously. But but also, they're, they're so universal, and everybody goes through them, and I thought it was important to share share this with other people. You mentioned people. You know, our audience is primarily healthcare providers, nurses, physicians, and associated staffs right. that support them. Right. Can that particular group, I, I know from you that your book has been discussed at grand rounds at various medical institutions. What can the takeaway be to this specific group? I decided to reach out to some major medical schools and hospital centers across the country. It's funny, it's sort of presumptuous of me because I'm not an MD, I'm a PhD, but my dad was a pathologist for about 45 years. And I always heard the terms creatinine and bilirubin and, and such when I was a little kid. And I never thought I would be close to the medical community in any way. But having gone through this transplant, uh, my heart and kidney transplant, I thought it would be really interesting to reach out and see if I could speak to them. And it was a little difficult because a lot of schools are very rigid. And if you don't have an MD and you're not talking about current research and so on, they're they're not interested. But 
some top schools were extremely receptive. I ended up giving Grand Rounds lectures to Mount Sinai and Columbia University in New York. I just did one at UCLA, Georgetown University in D.C., and I'm going to be talking to Cedar sinai in L.A. and Scripps Memorial in La Jolla. And what I talk about there is what I think can be taken from this book to answer your question by physicians and nurses and medical people. And that is, my talk is all about what I call the seven powers that patients have, but often they have to be excluded and pulled out by the medical community, by people who see them, the, the attendings, the people on rounds, the physicians, cardiologists, internal medicine people, nurses, the whole staff. And those powers, some of them are the power of the will, the power of patience, particularly the power of hope, power of humor, uh, self-confidence, knowing, and even not knowing. Humility comes into that and hope, as I said. And these are very powerful tools that the medical people who, who treat their patients can use. Sometimes they don't, unfortunately. So I think that's the the message I give, not only in my book, but in, in these uh, Grand Round Lectures. Yeah, that's very interesting. They very often don't. I mean, we are hearing uh, more and more what the patient says and what the doctor hears and how there's often a a, a gap between yeah. that. When Larry King interviewed me recently on his uh, TV show, Larry King Now, he said, you know, one of the things that they don't teach in medical school, particularly, is the doctor-patient relationship. And one, it's not a story, but one anecdote that I had was, you were just talking about the gap between that. I had a wonderful thoracic surgeon, Alfredo Trento, at Peter Sinai, and I went into him actually just before I went under uh, during my 12-hour transplant surgery, and I said, you know, Alfredo, we had this conversation in Italian, but I said, you know, I go in here black and white, just putting my doctor's hat on, and it's all left brain, and my heart's in a certain condition, and you have certain skills, and the anesthesiologist has certain skills. But isn't there room for, like, the intangibles, like hope and determination and grit and fighting through this? Because, I, you know, I'm a very positive person generally. And he explained to me, and this was eye-opening, he said, you know, it's true. It doesn't sound very medical, but there's a neurobiochemical effect that attitude has on the body. And he said, I can see from you that even though you seven, I was 71 at the time on the cusp of transplantation candidacy, he said, I can see that because of your attitude, you're going to get through this. And I knew I would. I hoped I would anyway. So that showed me that the intangible thing that doctors should be aware of and very sensitive to is very important for, for survival. You know, you mentioned many doctors. You, you were in the, as you said, you were in the hospital over 100 days. You had many doctors. You described them in glowing terms. I was struck that you... Or, I, I thought about, did you ever meet one whose most invaluable trait is he knows what he doesn't know? <laughs> That's a great question. You know, I did, in fact, because my background is literature and philosophy and so on. And as I said, thinking helped me so much to put things into perspective and to be positive. And I thought about all kinds of things from sports to metaphors and literature and music and art and so on. And to answer your question, to me, one of the keys to life, much less survival, and it's one of the key characteristics that I look for in people, particularly in the doctors who, you know, uh, who had my life in their hands, literally, is the trait of humility and to know what you don't know and to be aware of your limitations, and which leads to your desire to learn and to improve. 
I often went back to one of the people I taught in my literature classes, a wonderful philosopher named Montaigne, who was a 16th century French philosopher. And he was like this brilliant, incredible man who wrote a, a huge tome called The Essays, or Essays, all about life and so on. And he had a phrase that he wore around his neck and he had in his home, and it was in French, in old French, Cossège, which means, what do I know? This brilliant guy, what do I know? And that sort of has been a, a very important thing in my life, and I value that very much in people, particularly in the medical people who treated me, the ability to know your limitations and to know answers, but when you don't, to seek help. It's in the Hippocratic Oath, after all, to seek help from other people, so it's really important for me. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Book Club Reach MD, and I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickern, and joining me today is Bob Mitchell, who has written a recent memoir of his experience with having heart transplantation. It is called Time for a Heart to Heart, Reflections on Life in the Face of Death. Do you think the book is also written for patients? In other words, were there certain clues or things that you acquired by this prolonged time that you had in the hospital that you'd like to pass on to our patients and our doctors should be listening to and they also could pass on to their patients? Well, I don't want to give a recipe because there isn't any. And it's really scary and, you know, but I see life in a sort of existential way to go back to the French philosophers, Sartre and, and such. You have no control over the future uh, or of the unknown. Everybody's afraid of it, but it's because they have no, no control over it. And I think the healthiest thing to do is to try to be in the present as much as you can, even though the future is harrowing and scary. You're waiting for a heart and so on. And then in my case, they found the renal cell carcinoma in the middle and they had to take me off the list and, and uh, had to have a partial nephrectomy and so on. It's pretty scary. What's going to happen? Am I going to live? Am I going to be able to you know, see my kids and whatever? And I think it's a powerful thought to think of just being with yourself and being confident and being as positive as possible instead of trying to control the future. I use one in the book, I use one amazing metaphor that sort of crystallizes this, and it's the story of Sisyphus, the Greek god who was punished, tortured by rolling up a boulder up a big hill. And every time he got to the top, it would roll back down. That was his torture. And a French writer named Camus, Albert Camus, in the 50s, he wrote a book called The Myth of Sisyphus, and it's just an amazing story. He tells the story, the myth, and at the end of the story, he says something just unbelievable, and he says... We have to imagine Sisyphus happy. And can you imagine, you know, imagine somebody like that? Happy. If you can imagine yourself happy or positive in the face of these amazing conflicts, it's so gratifying and it gives you perspective and clarity. And you don't have to worry about what's going to happen because after all, you have no control. I, I use these metaphors and these thoughts as a sort of a tool, as you said, to get past the fear that you might have as to what's going to happen, because as I said, there's nothing you can do about that. And you introduced me to a word that's kind of a segue to what you just said. Would you tell me a little bit about the word ullage? U-L-L-A-G-E. It was a new book, a new word for me, but how that figured into this mechanism? It's interesting. I, um, I actually gave the commencement address at my old high school in Brooklyn, New York, uh, in 2007. And I used that. Usually you tell the graduates, you're going to go do great things and life's going to be great and you'll contribute. But I preferred to talk about college 
Ullage is the top of a cask, a wine cask, where a gas has escaped and it's empty. But it basically is a metaphor for the empty part of the glass. And I like to look at the full part of the glass, of course. But the empty part of the glass interests me also because, as you mentioned before, it's the fear of the future and the emptiness of you know, negative thoughts. And our choice is always there. You need ullage in order to look at the full glass. This is an old idea started by Plato in, in one of his dialogues called the Phaedo, and it's called the theory of antitheses. I talk about this in the book, which means that there's no such thing as empty unless there's full. There's no such thing as hot unless there's cold and so on. Everything is in contrast to its opposite. And this is a fact of life and a tenet I've always believed in. And it allows you to put things into perspective. So when you go through something like this, some horrible experience, it makes you appreciate so much more the positive aspect of it. And that's the importance of the negative, the importance of ullage. When I write a book, for instance, there's a lot of suffering and struggle, and it makes the writing of it that much sweeter. And in fact, I love talking about the word passion, which actually in Greek and Latin means to struggle. So you get your passion from something only by going through the difficulties. And um, that's a big part of my way of looking at life. Before we leave, so much of your book introduced me to various philosophers, songs that were important to you, poetry, vignettes. Could you give me some thoughts about how literature can help doctors be better at what they do? I certainly remember when I began to think about medicine, people like A.J. Cronin and Somerset Maugham, Sinclair Lewis had tremendous impact on me then, maybe in a more romantic or idealistic way. But literature is so important now and may be neglected in our training. So in closing, could you give me some kind of comments from a novelist, from a professor of French literature, about how we can help doctors be better through literature? That's the best question was saved for last. That's a really, really good question. There was a doctor, a very, very well-known doctor named Richard Seltzer. He was a surgeon and professor at Yale for many, many years. But he was also a fantastic writer. He wrote several books I've read, one called Rituals of Surgery and the other called Mortal Lessons. He wrote about sickness, but in a, such a beautiful way. And he was a literary person as well as a doctor. And I had many talks with him. I used to meet with him in uh, Westport, Connecticut. It was the first time I was really exposed to someone who was a literary person and also a surgeon. And I always was fascinated by the schism between these two areas, literature and medicine, or art and science, left and right brain. There's such a difference between the two, and the fact that you asked this question of how literature can help doctors sounds a little strange at first, but it's so important. And I think that what literature gives to a person who really appreciates it and enjoys it is the sense of metaphor, the sense that what you say is not just what you say literally, as is often the black and white world of medicine, but it, it suggests certain things. It allows you to see the world in a different way, whether it's art, music, literature, sculpture, whatever. And it teaches you lessons about things. It gives you a deeper, deeper understanding of thoughts and actions and the way the world works. It gives you perspective and allows you to see the bigger picture as opposed to the X's and O's, to use a football metaphor, of medicine. So I think it just broadens your way of looking at life. And it gives a certain creativity to diagnosis that's often very direct in medicine. It sounds strange to say creativity in medicine because medicine is 
mostly you know scientific and straightforward, but I think that exists and it's really helpful when there isn't an answer in particular. Maybe it allows you to see things in a different way. So I think it, you know, it can be very valuable to, to medical people. Well, thank you very much for spending this time with us. Again, the book is called Time for a Heart to Heart, Reflections on Life in the Face of Death. Thank you very much. This is Dr. Maurice Pickerton, and if you've missed any of this discussion, please visit reachmd.com slash book club to download the podcast and many others in this series. Again, thank you very much for listening.